This is Smarter Cars, and I'm your host, Michelle Kairouz. Welcome to season six of the podcast. Today we're talking with Carl Wernersen, the chief commercial officer at Voy, a scooter company based in Sweden. We talk about Voy's latest scooter and its new technology from turn signals to sidewalk detection, as well as swappable batteries and its efforts to improve sustainability. We also talk about Voy's efforts to expand into new cities, including possibly New York, and how some of the operational and regulatory challenges differ between Europe and the U.S. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in micromobility? Yeah, sure. Part of that story is, I guess, part of the voice story as well. So I, I actually have a background which might be quite odd considering the micromobility space, but I'm originally from the entertainment industry and worked for many years with, with brand building and digital marketing, actually, in the music industry. So, so from that... I actually went into uh, consulting for one of the bigger policy firms in, in Europe. One day I met one of the co-founders of Voy, Frederick Jelm, who came to me, talked to me about this phenomena <laughs> that he had seen on the West Coast in the US with, with people actually renting scooters through an app. And where, where he thought that even though the weather on the West Coast in the US is quite quite good compared to uh, what you would see in Scandinavia, he still thought this was something that, that the urban areas of, of Europe could benefit from, where many of the US cities are younger and were, to a large extent, built for cars as the primary mode of transportation, whilst we in Europe had older cities where the city centers, at least, wasn't uh, primarily developed for cars. So he had, I guess, two questions. One, how do we grow a user base and how do we work with cities? And because I had one foot in each bucket, I decided to join Voy early on and, and really kind of put that strategy together where we saw uh, a lot of, or at least from what we read in the US press, there seemed to be a lot of friction between the operators and the cities at the time. And where I thought, considering we were an underdog with not access to as much capital as they would, or as they had, thought that, well, I, I think there is something in this actually working with cities and and collaborate, even though it might take longer time until we can actually establish and you know put out the scooters on the streets in, in the cities where we want to go, getting the city's blessing will be instrumental, not short term, but midterm. And that's actually what, what we have done since we started, where in Europe, a lot of countries haven't really or didn't really have any regulations in place, enabling them to enforce or restrict uh, use of these vehicles. But with that said, we still wanted to get the blessing of the city before going in and enabling our services. And that has served us quite well, where we are now live in approximately 55 cities across Europe with 6 million customers all in all. Great. And when did you start Voy? So that was the summer of 2018 or spring 2018. And we managed to get our first 100 vehicles out by August 2018 in Stockholm. And so tell me about the countries where you're operating in Europe and some of the differences or, or challenges that you face kind of getting into those cities with scooters. You know, when we started, there wasn't any regulations in Europe. There was some regulation, like in the UK, they had a road 
legislation act preventing private usage or rental usage of electric scooters but other than that it was pretty much an open field but with that said i guess the challenges from a city perspective have been similar to the ones that you guys have experienced in the us with complaints about cluttering accidents of course and uh, actually introducing a new a new mode of transportation into into the, the city picture and and for europe and I mean, looking at Scandinavia, perhaps have been quite progressive, actually. We have worked closely with all the cities to actually, even though there is no regulatory framework in place, we have pushed for that. And now we're actually seeing that materializing. But even prior to that, we have been working closely with the cities to try to find you know, designated parking areas, education, where some of the operators have actually gone together under pretty much a joint venture where, where we hire ambassadors to make sure that the, the city centers are clean and that there are no misplaced scooters. So a number of scooter companies are working together on that project. Yes. So that's something that we, we initiated, especially in Oslo and uh, some of the Norwegian cities where we operate, where scooter density have increased a lot over the last 12 months with tremendous use, actually. It, it's definitely become one of the more popular modes of transportation in the cities of Oslo. But, but with that said, having to also manage that, that fleet size and that density of vehicles, and that we do together, so as colleagues and not competitors. What are the other countries that you're in? You're in the UK, you're in some places in the Nordic countries. Where else are you operating? Yeah, so we are operating in all of the Scandinavian countries. We operate in France, we operate in Germany, and then more recently, when legislation opened up, also the UK. You mentioned the idea of working with cities and that you wanted from the beginning to work closely with cities. What are the most effective elements that you've seen in the scooter programs in European cities? What are the things that cities are focused on and what do you think works the best in terms of the approach that the cities are taking to regulating shared scooters? I think there are, there are a couple of different layers to that. I think one is obviously number of operators and fleet size, because I mean, we've seen some examples in Europe where cities have effectively said, we want 5,000 scooters in our city. And depending on how many that applies, we will distribute that quote pro rata across all the operators. That creates, I guess, two challenges, really. One is from our customer point of view, having to deal with seven or eight different apps to travel in the city. And secondly, with a smaller fleet size, it's quite hard to create a profitable and sustainable business. So on the back of that, what we have seen in Paris, for example, they choose three operators to operate 5,000 scooters each. What we have um, done successfully in the UK now, where we control about 80% of the market share, is, is that during the pilot uh, or trial year, have actually advised them to go with one operator to enable a tighter working group. Working with one operator has its benefits because there's only one operator to, to carry all the responsibility, whether it's cluttering, safety, or social behavior, or whatever it might be. That has proven to be a, quite a successful formula, actually, to, to really succeed in a licensing scheme. And does that allow effective operation in a smaller, less dense city by having it, it, fewer operators? It does indeed, because, and that goes back to the good regionalization, effectively. So getting access to a bigger inventory or a, a bigger area, if you want to call it, with a modest amount of competition, not saying that an exclusive license 
is always the way to go, even though it has its benefits, both from the city and operator perspective. But having a small amount of operators really enables uh, the city to accommodate micromobility providers over time. And what are you seeing with respect to infrastructure in terms of where people can ride scooters, where they can park scooters, how you can charge scooters? What are you seeing in the different cities and are there some approaches that you think have worked better than others? I mean, for, for many of our European cities, we still are running a complete free floating system, but where we, with the blessing of the city or private landlords, have uh, been able to put up parking racks or physical void racks, if you want to call it, where we incentivize users to park. So they effectively get a discount for each and every ride that they do that ends in a parking rack. What we have seen now more recently in the UK, based on our initiative, was to, to do it in a more hybrid way, where where the city center and the very dense areas of the cities, we have mandatory parking spaces. So either virtual zones or physical racks where users in the dense areas have to park. And then as you go further out in a city, can allow free float. And that enables the freedom of the customer to really go where they need to go. And secondly, also prevents cluttering and sidewalk obstacles in in the more dense areas of the city. And what about riding of scooters? Is it generally prohibited in European cities to ride a scooter on the sidewalk? And if so, if you're riding in the street, are, you know, how many cities have protected micromobility lanes? Like how how often do you see that? Yeah, so there, there are there are quite a few countries actually where sidewalk riding that goes with both bikes and and, and e-bikes and and e-scooters is forbidden but generally i think either either that law doesn't exist or it's not being enforced but what we do have in in europe a lot is bike lanes right so they might not necessarily be protected but they still exist as you know part of the part of the infrastructure in a city so I guess what we see a lot is is that users are obviously choosing them over riding in the car lanes, if you want to call it. And what about charging? I know many of the scooter companies now want to have a swappable battery and operations like that. Are you still doing some charging of scooters on a dock? Are you swapping? And what is the infrastructure that you would like to see in cities, whether it's charging or swapping? It seems like having physical places within a city where that can happen would be helpful. I mean, like the way the way we operate is that we operate a fully swappable fleet. And what we what we have seen as gains from doing that compared to the embedded battery charging, where you effectively have to kind of bring in the entire vehicle for charging are, I think there are three things all in all. One thing is that obviously we create a higher uptime on the fleet, meaning that the scooter is only down for a couple of minutes when the swap is actually happening. We don't contribute to traffic congestion based on the fact that instead of using vans to collect thousands of vehicles every day, we collect the batteries using uh, electric cargo bikes instead. And thirdly, which might not be something that you would think of immediately, is that we we also isn't labor. So instead of having to lift a 60-pound vehicle in and out of vans all day, the people which are in all of the cases, in-house chargers, so employed staff, not gig workers, 
get a more decent working environment. Tell us about your most recent iteration of your scooter. You design your own scooters. You have, I think, the Voyager 4. Tell us what your scooter is like. What are some of the features that you've recently introduced? Sure. I mean, so over the last two years, we have done quite opposite to what other what other operators have done. Some of them, or the American ones, decided early on to go with proprietary vehicles and do everything from production to design themselves. We, on our hand, have or choose early on to work with someone closely, which is Segway in this case. So they're the company that have spent the last decade, if not even more, to develop light electric vehicles. So together with them, we have developed the Voyager 4 and also POS models, of course. And what, what the V4 is all about is increasing traffic safety. That is done by improving the signal lights of the vehicle. We have the turn indicators. So for other road users, it will be more evident what the scooter is actually heading towards. Those are turn signals like we might see on a car in the United States. Yes. Uh, how do you initiate the turn signal if you're riding a scooter and you have two hands on your handlebars to ride? Where are the turn signals located and how do you initiate them? You initiate them by using two buttons on the handlebar. So they're just next to the throttle. And, and they are located on the very uh, tips of the handlebar. So you have turn signals. That seems to be new. What about wheel size, sturdiness? How are you thinking about improving the sustainability and durability as you move through the models that you're using? Yeah, so for the wheels, they've actually remained. So they're the same wheels as for the V3. We have improved suspension. We have the exact same modular system that we have used in the past that have proven to be very efficient from a maintenance perspective, meaning that we, we get almost five-year lifetime out of the vehicle, which is effectively a study that we have done together with Ernst & Young to get the third-party validation of how we are actually calculating that. And then... Yeah, for, for the vehicle itself and V4, uh, something else that, that we have worked uh, tremendously uh, hard on is also to uh, improve the parts of it that is actually proprietary, which in our case is the ISTA IoT module. So the IoT module is the, the, the device that connects the vehicle with the cloud, and that contains everything around GPS positioning, connectivity and so forth. So in this new model, we have improved our location accuracy quite a bit, as well as also improving connectivity. So it's a working in a better way to avoid to avoid outages or disconnects from, from our service, meaning that that geofencing technology and so forth is working a lot better than, than it has been historically. It seems like there's a big focus among scooter companies on technology and using technology to try to alleviate some of the concerns that cities have, particularly with speed, with geofencing, with sidewalk riding, things of that nature. Can you explain why GPS is not sufficient for many of the scooter applications and why you need something more to refine that? Yeah, sure. So. I mean, GPS is actually an old technology, right? It's from the 50s, if I don't recall it wrongly. But traditionally, what you have seen in, in more consumer-like applications has been uh, a way where GPS only communicates with one 
satellite at the time. Now there are new technologies available where, where I think at least VOI is the first operator in the world to actually incorporate this technology, meaning that we're using four uh, satellites instead of one. So what, what that means is that when you run into urban canyons, and urban canyons is, is effectively areas with high buildings where the GPS signal starts to bounce off buildings, giving distortions in the positioning accuracy that is prevented by that. And then on top of that, we're actually also collaborating with a UK-based company when it comes to computer vision. So not only using GPS to prevent antisocial behavior or sidewalk uh, detection, but also using image sensors to identify any sidewalk riding. Is that Luna systems that you're working with? Yes, it is indeed. So basically GPS is not accurate within a short enough distance to identify things like sidewalk riding. And it has these lag issues around being in big cities and not communicating with the satellite frequently enough that there's a lag before it recognizes that the scooter's in the wrong place. Historically, that's been the case, yes. Something else that the computer vision technology gives us is also the ability to identify any pedestrians in front of the scooters and so forth. So there are more to it than only the the sidewalk detection uh, capabilities. Why we think that is an excellent fit together with our improved GPS accuracy technology. One of the other aspects of technology I think that scooter companies are starting to use is this question of self-diagnostics predictive maintenance, servicing, understanding what exactly is going on with the vehicle, when it's going to need some maintenance. How are you handling those issues with your newest scooter? Yeah, so that was actually something that to us became a bigger challenge when we introduced swappable batteries, right? Because what that meant was that we didn't necessarily bring in the vehicle when we charged it to actually inspect it to look for any things that needed maintenance. So when we launched that in the beginning of 2020, we also launched, just as what you're mentioning, a more predictive maintenance program. So what that means is that our servers, and that is also why the connectivity is so important, right? Is that our servers are constantly analyzing all the signals coming from the vehicle. So not only when you ride, but always on, meaning that any deviations of signals that is coming from the engine, from the battery, from the IoT module, from the throttle, from the brakes, from all of these different parts of the vehicle, if we see any deviations from one vehicle compared to the rest of the fleet, that would be immediately flagged and that vehicle would then be taken offline to actually be brought in for maintenance. If we look at the UK now, for example, where we are live in seven cities and where we have been carefully monitoring just that part of it, obviously we're doing that across all our markets, but it's been an ask from the cities as well. We have had zero accidents yet to date depending on any hardware failure. So that together with also the fact that we are measuring distance and how many trips the vehicle have taken, we get a good foundation to make sure that anything that needs to be replaced or adjusted or serviced is or is being done prior to to that fault or error is is being or would happen it's really interesting to me the use of technology on the vehicles that so many requirements are being added on such a small vehicle where with cars we don't have regulators for speed i mean clearly we could and we don't then we don't 
force cars to have a breathalyzer test before you can operate the vehicle. Why do you think there is so much emphasis on making the vehicle itself be regulated rather than enforcing user behavior as we do with car driving. No, totally. And I, I think, I mean, anything around bad behavior and no vehicle type, I guess, goes into that question, really. I would see it as the opportunity to launch a, a no mode of transportation in this day and age, right? Because when cars were publicly made available, the technology wasn't there, right? And I think what we are facing is, is something that is almost like a three pillar foundation, right? Where one is technology driven prevention measures, right? Which is, I mean, we launched uh, the drunk driving test. Uh, we have done beginner's mode, which is effectively a feature where a user can't go for the full speed of the, of, the, of the vehicle for the first five trips. And then you have the geo zones, you have the no, like you have, you have different ways to kind of police or prevent bad user behavior, if you want to call it. Then you have a second pillar that is user education. So that's effectively how, how do we uh, educate our users in how to behave in traffic because what's also changing especially in cities and not sure if that goes for the us as well as in europe but the number of citizens with a driver's license are decreasing on a year-per-year basis meaning that if if you have a driver's license and you would use and operate a scooter you would likely do that in a better manner than someone that have never set their foot in traffic before right so what we have done is to launch together with local traffic safety organizations across Europe, driver educational online course. So we have yet to date educated our 500,000 people in how to behave in traffic, which is effectively almost the same test as you would take where driver's licenses are being issued <laughs> in, in, in each and every country. Thirdly, which is something I guess comes with market matureness, if you want to call it, is uh, a social norm. So what you would see, I mean, for car drivers, for example, someone wouldn't park their car in Central Park just because there's, you know, empty space, right? <laughs> the, you know, there's there's a social norm. Well, they probably would. That. They probably would. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but, you know, like people wouldn't be driving in pedestrian zones uh, because not so much because it's illegal, but... Of, of course, it's that too, but also that you wouldn't want to be that person being called out for driving there, right? Oh, that's the difference uh, between Europe and the US. Oh, uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'll let you be the judge of that. But that's at least something that we have seen in Europe and, and maybe more recently in the UK, you know, with, with a new mode of transportation being offered to, to a wider audience. You would see the sidewalk riding. You would see yeah, people doing you know, twin riding, people doing the most creative things you could ever imagine with the vehicles but as time goes and in the very beginning when we launch in a new city are working intensely with with ambassadors to really not only educate users and help them on board on the service but also to actually police and ban users that are not obeying to the, to the rules and regulations not only our own user terms but the city regulations what we have seen from that is obviously that that people tend to have a safer first trip and then secondly, there's a word of mouth effect. Uh, we see that a lot. So uh, when we go in and we start to kind of penalize users um, for bad behavior, that spreads, you would say, decrease of that behavior quite immediately, actually. And you're also incentivizing good behavior with credits for people who wear a helmet or park in a, yes. in a good place or who take your traffic school course? Yes. So I guess that also goes into the work is that we have a new feature that we launched a couple of weeks ago or months now, I guess, which is a helmet selfie tool, meaning that if a user have a helmet, 
they can take a photo of themselves. We use AI to validate whether that is a helmet or not. If it is, they will get a ride discount. And we mentioned the, the traffic school. And then other than that, we are actually just starting or working with a more algorithm-like detection of both good and bad rider behavior to, to really identify both behaviors proactively rather than reactive. It's interesting because with things like ride hailing, you could rate the driver and the driver could rate you. And so if a passenger was abusing something, they would get a lower score and they could be banned from the system. It would be kind of an interesting system to develop as well. Indeed. What, what, what we've also done more recently is, is to develop a driver license verification software. So when you onboard, you actually have to prove your identity, which have also, when we have done A-B testing, proven that users that are not anonymous tend to behave better. We call that the Twitter problem. If Twitter made you use your real name, we could really cut down on bad behavior. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not too sure about that. Uh, having had Facebook for for almost a decade now. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Are there other safety technologies that you're thinking about? I know uh, some companies are beginning to think about what we call ADAS here, assisted driving technologies like automatic braking or collision detection. Are there other things that you think can be done with the scooter to improve safety? I think what, what we have seen for, so far, I mean, if, if we look at our own internal accident data versus our scooter models, it's actually quite interesting to see how the number of accidents per million trips keep going down and down, depending based on how, how we create the hardware. Uh, so I guess that is one part of it. Second part of it is that I think computer vision sensors and so forth kind of you know, enables that foundation of them taking the next steps to IDA or collision detection and so forth. I think it's very early on. It's going to be, I think, two or three really interesting years in that field. I think there is a lot to be learned from the motorcycle industry. BMW have done uh, a similar system for their motorcycles. So perhaps there are technology to be taken from there. But I still think it's super early on. And I think some of the responsibility in this question is also for the car manufacturers to really start to improve that, not only for scooter users, but for bike users and pedestrians and so forth. I think, sadly enough, a lot of the traffic accidents are actually involving cars. And the number of accidents that are single accidents, if you want to call them, tend to be not as fatal as the ones involving cars and, and... I was going to ask, to what extent do you feel that you mentioned fewer injuries as your vehicles have matured and had different safety features, but are any of those changes really as relevant as protecting users from contact with cars? I mean, it's, protected lanes, really the only safety feature that really moves the needle? It is, it is 100%. That together with, I mean, outer braking, I mean, Volvo have gone quite far on that field to actually detect pedestrians or other things in front of the vehicle and then assist the driver with, with, uh, with braking and stopping the vehicle. I think that technology together with protected bike lanes is the way forward to really decrease the number of severe accidents in urban areas. Yeah, and so the technology and the sturdiness of the vehicle can reduce some of the injuries that people might have, uh, smaller injuries from riding the vehicle themselves, but the really serious injuries are coming from contact with cars. Is that right? Yes, yes. 
So you mentioned sustainability and working with Ernst & Young and looking at your scooters being able to last longer. What are the changes that you've seen with respect to your battery? The batteries themselves are pretty much you know, the same ones as we started with. Of course, they become more energy efficient. We have been able to do a lot of energy saving on when the scooters are, are actually not rented, which contributes a lot to, to uptime and charging cycles, if you want to call them. So battery batteries themselves, they have, I mean, also evolved over time, but I guess what it, the, the swappable batteries really what that enables us with is to extend the lifetime of them because the most fatal action towards a lithium ion battery is bumps and, and hits, right? So if the, the battery is handled standalone compared to when it's embedded into a 60 pound vehicle that makes a lot of difference so the battery lifetime increases with swappable batteries looking at the environmental impact of an electric scooter manufacturing electric scooter the the battery itself is basically i i i, I don't have the numbers to hand but i would say that it's more than 50 percent of, of the environmental impact right so by being able to use the batteries for longer in a more scalable way than in the past where we of course transferred the embedded batteries if a scooter were broken onto a new one but this system really brings down the environmental impact also not to forget about charging and instead of using huge bands to drive around in cities collecting a lot of mass <laughs> we are now collecting a smaller mass when it comes to the charging of them and how long do your batteries typically last when you think about operational costs one of the concerns at least with many of the american companies has been the operational costs of running these programs in cities and one of the biggest costs has been charging and the downtime associated with scooters being unavailable with a swappable battery how often are you swapping the battery out? It really depends on utilization, but somewhere between once every 10 to 15 trips, which is a great gain compared to what you would see in the past with maybe three to six times or six, three to six trips per, per charging cycle. So it's definitely a game changer. And what other steps have you taken as you've developed programs in different cities to reduce operational costs? What the swappable technology and kind of how we work with rebalancing of the fleet and also maintenance now with the more predictive maintenance have allowed us to work a lot leaner and a lot more efficient. And what that means that it's not so much about the cost savings, right? But it's about the increased uh, revenue potential per vehicle that has increased with leaner operations and, and, a, and an improved uptime effectively. That has really like been kind of the 2020 game changer, if you want to call it, where we now in a more sustainable way can operate in, in smaller cities with more competition. And how do you think about rebalancing? I know in the United States, in many cities, there have been some complex regulations around which neighborhoods and those kinds of things which seem to add to the operational complexity. How are cities in Europe regulating where you put the vehicles? I mean, overall in the cities that are uh, regulated, because there are still unregulated cities in Europe, but in the regulated cities, what you usually see is uh, an overall city cap, right? I guess it goes both in the city and the operator's interest to have as high utilization as you possibly can on that fleet and on those vehicles. You are starting to see some more pilot-like programs where cities are starting to look into kind of neighborhood control, if you want to call it, 
where we in those cases are, are working with ambassadors and user incentivized rebalancing to make sure that we follow the city's wishes or regulatory requirements. What we have also found is that considering that in that aspect, the cities and the operators' interests are aligned, right? Because there's in no one's interest to have scooters standing without no one using them. So in cases where we have seen a higher demand than perhaps what a neighborhood cap would allow, we've been able to kind of talk to the city and make adjustments as we go, as long as we kind of had the data to kind of prove, yeah, are prove any, the case. Yeah. Are any of the cities in Europe using a dynamic cap where if you hit a certain number of rides per day per scooter, then you can increase the number of scooters that are allowed? Not so much from the cities in a set articulated process, but that's usually like when we work with cities, not only in the licensed cities, but in unlicensed cities as well. That's kind of how we go about it, you know, because for us, we, in order for us to have a sustainable business, we really need that utilization, right? So you kind of get that either way. But then you see some pilots coming uh, out, I guess, early 2021, where the cities are also actually asking for certain thresholds to increase fleet sizes and so forth. What cities are you hoping to enter next? I mean, there are, there are so many out there. <laughs> but I guess the two cities that are uh, currently being tendered is, is London and New York. So those are cities we are obviously hoping to get an opportunity to work and operate in. But other than that, looking at Spain, looking at obviously the compactor in the, in the countries where we are already in. And as of right now, we're controlling about 50% of the licensed ESCO market in Europe. So with that said, it's really also about keeping those relationships and improving our business in the existing city and not so much of the perhaps blitz scaling that you would see from operators a couple of years ago, but really to carry that responsibility and do that very well. Is your competition for the New York tender the beginning of a larger push into other U.S. cities as well? I think some of the cities in on the East Coast of the U.S. is quite interesting for us because they are, they are older than some of the West Coast cities, meaning that the urban environment, it's similar to to Europe, right? Uh, and we know how to operate European cities. We do that very well. We think there is weather on the East Coast that we're also quite well equipped to, to deal with from an operational perspective and an experience perspective. So looking at the New York tender, a potential opportunity to, to operate there. Yeah, we think we are a good fit also on the back of the fact that we have such vast experience in working with cities across Europe. We have a deep understanding of how you work with cities to problem solve and overcome city challenges to meet the targets and ambitions. And I think that sometimes is, is being forgotten about. So that was kind of the rationale behind why this European company are now suddenly looking into New York. All the American companies are going to Europe because you have better infrastructure and, and regulatory and, and density for running a scooter system. So it's funny to see it come the other way when American cities are in some ways less desirable on, on those metrics. Yeah, I think, I mean, overall, perhaps yes, but I think New York uh, is, is a great fit for micromobility services. I'm a true believer, and I think there are other cities on the East Coast as well, that if they don't have a system as of today, should really consider to have one uh, to complement public transport and um, yeah, and other modes of transportation. Are you going to expand into electric bikes? We actually have. We are launching e-bikes in some selected cities over, or in, now in 2021. 
but I guess what what we have really been focusing on is the electric is the electric scooter to really double double down on that vehicle and become excellent at operating them and understanding our customers. We we think there are great e-bike operators out there that are doing the the maintenance and operations of those programs extremely well. So before going into that at scale, we definitely need to become best in class when it comes to electric scooters. So yes to e-bikes, but slowly and not right away is that fair yes <laughs> okay what about other form factors are you looking at a seated scooter or something in between a scooter and a bike or a moped well, we're actually exploring and piloting a three-wheeler if you want to call it with two front wheels and a seat so people that are facing issues with balance you know or other physical conditions that prevent them from using the more traditional e-scooter so yes we are piloting a model for that need um, not entirely sure when or if it will hit production but definitely something we have in our pipeline and something that we are really ready to to add to our, to our inventory and to our fleets so you raised a big series c uh, recently 160 million with uh, a mix of equity and debt what does the next year or so look like for the company as a business and and what are you hoping to accomplish this year yeah so i guess what was really exciting to see despite the covid in 2020 was that we actually managed to hit profitability under a couple of months during the summer on a group level so the ambition for 2021 is to really hit profitability on an annual basis for the company as a whole. So that's definitely what, what we have set out to do. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Carl for joining us. You can find the show notes for this episode on our Substack publication at smartercars.substack.com. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.